0: Good afternoon, everyone. It's great to be together on another holy day. It seems like we were just together a week or so ago. When we returned from the Feast of Tabernacles a little more than six months ago, we began a countdown to the Passover. It seemed like such a long, long ways off. We have a practice each week in our congregation where we note where we are specifically in God's calendar and how many more days until the next holy day. I distinctly remember it being announced that we were 183 days from Passover. And now, in a few hours, the spring holy days of 2014 are but a memory. A little more than a week ago, we commemorated the Passover and were reminded of the saving blood of Jesus Christ done nothing to earn this grace but we are grateful to have been called to receive it. Our reminder last week of that sacrifice serves as our recommitment this year to this way of life. We then the following evening commemorated the night to be much observed. We reflected with great thanks on our journey on our personal journey from a sinful life without God, to a forgiven life with God. Finally, in what has been a very, very busy eight days, we celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which ends today. Our focus on the lifelong process of putting sin out of our lives and replacing it with the character and mind of Jesus Christ has been our focus for this week. You likely noted, but it does bear pointing out, the celebrations have been community-based. We were together on Passover. We were together for the night to be much observed. We were together last week. We were together on the Sabbath. We're together again today. God's people have been and continue to function in a community setting. Israel was a community. The church, starting with the disciples, and then expanding to the 120, and then the 5,000, and so on, was and remains today a community. Now that we have come to the end of another Feast of Unleavened Bread, what should our mindset be? Are we more unleavened now than we were a year ago? Are we more unleavened now than we were a week ago? Are we focused on putting into practice what we hear each week? as individuals and as a community. Last week, Pastor Ramachan kicked off the feast with a message on pride. Not an intellectual, doctrinal statement on the ins and outs of pride, but a real rubber-meets-the-road message on pride. One that likely cut to the heart. It did for me. He gave several practical examples of how pride manifests itself in the Christian life. You may recall, he talked about the mindset that these sermons that I hear, man, I know some other people in the congregation that can really benefit from this. And he talked about how that was prideful. This is the I am better than you mentality. Different than the I am better than you mentality is the I know better than you mentality. When there's, when there's disagreements in, in various points of scripture, is the I know better than you mentality. And one I had never considered until he brought it out was the I'm not going to try anything new and open myself up to the possibility of weakness part of pride. How many here found at least one area of pride that we could work on as we came to be completely unleavened? We continue to pray and study daily We fellowship often. We hear messages prepared by God through His servants for His people. Are these just speaking assignments, reading assignments, study assignments, and social gatherings that we use to tell ourselves that we are good Christians? Or are we really, really becoming unleavened? The answers to these important questions rest not on what we did this past week but rather what we are going to do going forward from here. So with another Feast Unleavened Bread in the books in a few hours, I have a simple question to ask of all of us today. Now what? Now what? What do we do after the Feast Unleavened Bread has everything to do with how well we are becoming unleavened So I ask, now what? Now what? We're nearly done. Now what? Let's go to the Bible and see what options we have. The Bible is actually full of options that we have to answer this question, now what? Where do we go from here? What do I do tonight? What do I do tomorrow? What do I do next week? Now what? Let's go to the Bible and find out some of the options that we have. Let's start back in Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14, if you'll go there with me and before I go further, I will like to thank all the people that contributed to the music that was it's always a inspiring part of the service Exodus chapter 14 we know that after Israel left Egypt, pictured by events last week, eventually came to the Red Sea crossing. That's covered generally in chapter 14. We won't take time to read that in too much detail for time's sake. I'll have you look down at verse 30 as we begin. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the land of the Egyptians and Israel out of the land of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. And so the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Now while there is no specific indication that this took place on the last day of 11 bread, it no doubt took place around this time. Some say it took place on the third or fourth day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Some say it took place today. There's, there's nothing concrete as there are in other places that this took place on the last day of Unleavened Bread. But it took place clearly around this time. Clearly around this time. What a magnificent miracle this was. Even more, what a bonding experience it was for a brand new community. Finally escaping the shackles of the Egyptians coming up against an impossible obstacle, the Red Sea. And God provided a way. Well, not only was it a great miracle, but again, it was an amazing bonding experience for a brand new community, a brand new family. First chapter 15 tells us how they reacted. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider has, he is thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Sounds like something we would sing here today. Dropping down to verse 6, Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath, and it consumed them like stubble. Again, dropping down for time, sake to verse 11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? And notice, it was completely full of praise for God. All the focus is on God and all the great things that he did. Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. You in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. They did nothing here. They're not even claiming any responsibility for all of this miracle. This is all on God. Verse 17 you will you will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance in the place o lord which you which you have made for your own dwelling the sanctuary o lord which your hands have established the lord shall reign forever and ever For the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and dances. And Miriam answered answered them, singing, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. Everyone sang praises to God for this salvation. They owed their lives to God. They owed their community to God. Much like we do in our worship, we come together and praise God. We did for much of this afternoon so far. What a spiritual high we are on after worshiping God in song together. That's that's clear that we can clearly see it in our attitudes and our minds as we sing to God. A spiritual high when we hear God's word preached. We are quick to voice our praise to God when we are on such spiritual highs. Verse 22 So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, then they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah, and the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Three days. Three days from a year's worth of miracles, from the, one of the greatest miracles in the crossing of the Red Sea, and three days was all it took for them to consider, I'm thirsty. The water tastes terrible, and what am I going to drink? they have the God of Israel saving their rear ends from every possible obstacle and they're whining about what to drink. The complaining starts with these simple things here, like what are we going to drink? Really? Really? How do you go from a spiritual high to whining and complaining about such small things in mere days? How does that happen? Chapter 16, verse 1. And they journeyed from Elim, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month. One month later. One month after leaving Egypt. Probably about three weeks after the events that we just read about with the Red Sea on the fifteenth day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness and the children of Israel said to them oh that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full this was a place they couldn't leave in their tail lights their rearview mirror fast enough when God allowed them an opportunity to leave and a month later they're whining about the water and now they're so hungry they wish they were back. We know how Pharaoh treated them. He made them cut their own straw. He made everything so much harder for them. Really? The meat was that good? The the pots were that full? This is called revisionist history. Much like the War of 1812. Apparently both sides won. It just depends on who you ask. A month after their departure, the whining continues, and history has been rewritten. All of a sudden, this food that probably was not very good—probably stank. Was probably the the bread was hard. It was the ends of the crust that had been around for a while. The meat was a little rank, probably if there was meat at all. The vegetables were a little soft. Those ones that you sort of leave in the fridge for your your other brothers or sister to take in their lunch because you're not going to take that apple because it's a little soft. Let me be the first to say that I have been known, don't ask my family, just take it from me, to whine when things are not going my way. I find myself whining more often than I should. So I'm not without experience in this regard. But it amazes me when I hear over the years, God's people, having sat through a sermon at church, perhaps it's a holy day, perhaps it's a regular Sabbath, Blessed to be worshipping their creator together in peace. Blessed to be amongst family downstairs, wherever that is, fellowshipping. Complain over wait times in line at the food line. Or what order people are going to be lined up to get food. I took time to, uh, before I spoke here, to go downstairs to the gym. And the Toronto people have put on a nice spread. The tables are beautiful. The tables are set. There's flowers everywhere. There's—I don't know what flowers there. I'm not a florist. Uh, but the tables have nice tablecloths on them. They're all nicely, nicely laid out. Flowers are all over there. Let's not worry about when we get up to get our food. Let's enjoy. Let's enjoy each other's fellowship, no matter when we get up. So as you leave these days here this afternoon, and we go back to our lives of leavened bread, of cakes, of pastries, and other delectables, we here as God's people are presented with option number one in the the now what question. Now what? We can go from here and we can whine and complain and gripe when things do not go our own way. That's option one. Let's go to Joshua chapter 5. Let's go to Joshua chapter 5. Just for time setting, to set set the stage of where we are, we'll go to verse 10. We've just come through... second generation of Israelites crossing the Jordan the second generation has been circumcised so they can keep the Passover verse 10 we pick it up there now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho and they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land and the children no longer had manna but they ate of the food of the land of Canaan that year. So so far so good. This manna that had been keeping them sustained that they wanted and then didn't like and then grow accustomed to for 40 years has now become unnecessary because they're now safely in the land of Canaan and they have... All of this food, all of this plenty at their disposal. And it came to pass, verse 13, when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with sword drawn in hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell flat on his face, fell on his face to the earth, and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand. It's king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You should go around the city once. This you shall do six days and seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark but the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpet and it shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn and when you hear the sound of the trumpet that all the people shall shout with a great shout then the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people shall go up every man straight before him. So clearly we've identified this as the time of the Passover, and the days of Unleavened Bread. They've kept the Passover. They were to march around Jericho once a day for six days, and then on the seventh day today, they were to march around seven times and watch as the walls came down. Drop down to verse 15 of chapter 6. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. On that day, only they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it happened when the priest blew the trumpets that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and all the gold and all the vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord and they shall come into the treasury of the Lord. God has made this possible. And when these walls start coming down, you're going to see it. And when we do, we're going to ransack the city and we're going to take everything that belongs in Jericho and we're bringing it into the treasury of the Lord because this is all on God. We had nothing to do with this. This is all on God. Clear instructions were given as to how the people were to proceed. And we read that specifically in verse 19. All the treasures, every single last one, recovered from Jericho were to be placed in the treasury of God. The children of Israel, chapter 7 and verse 1, committed a trespass. The children of Israel, as a group, committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things. And so the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. One guy, one guy, broke the rule. And it affected the entire community. One guy. Someone took some of what now belonged to God and kept it for himself. And God was furious. Furious. Verse 2 So Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, completely unbeknownst to him at this point, he doesn't know, which is beside Beth Ovid, on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not let the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not, do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai, are there's nobody there. It's a small little group. Don't wake everybody up. We've been busy. There's a lot of marching around that we did. Just take a couple thousand, two or 3,000, send them in. They'll look after it. they are very few. So about 3,000 men, verse 4, went up there from the people. But they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as she- Shebarim, and struck them down on the descent. Therefore the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To deliver us into the hand of the Amorites? to destroy us Joshua hadn't clued in yet oh that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan you sh- could have left us back on that other side Joshua is saying oh Lord what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies for the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth and then what will that do for your great name his mind is right he just hadn't considered what caused this and God was very specific. Get up. Get up. And stand up like a man. Get off your face and stand up. Are you, have you not clued in? Have you not clued in what could have happened? Somebody went their own way. Somebody thought they knew better. Verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned. One guy. One guy sinned. But all of Israel sinned in God's eyes. They all sinned. They all sinned. Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have taken even some of the accursed things, and have both stolen and deceived, and they have also put it among their own stuff. Joshua could not figure out why God would leave them hanging high and dry until he heard God's anger and heard the command to get up. Therefore, verse 12, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they have come doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed from among you. Get up, get up, Joshua. Sanctify the people and say, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, because thus says the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you, until you take away the accursed thing from among you. My protection is off. I'm hands off until you make things right in your community. That's what God said to Joshua. Something happened, someone there has done something to bring dishonor to the entire community. 36 men lost their lives, and the entire community is without the protection of God. So here we have option number two to answer in our quest to find out now that we come to the end of the Days of Leavened Bread, much like these folks did, now what? Now what do we do? We could start doing things our own way. We could start doing things our own way. This is very detrimental to the community, as we see here, and affects the rest of the community. In this case, 36 people died as a result of Aiken's sin. And the entire Israelite army was chased away. And God removed his protection from his people. Bringing shame upon them and upon God. When we seek to do things our own way, we risk the safety and the sanctity of the entire community. Not the best choice. Not the best choice. But it is one option of what we could do next. It is one option. John chapter 21. John chapter 21. We come to another similar time of year. The days following the days of the Leavened Bread. Christ has appeared to several times he's admonished them to wait for the promise of God that's coming in a few weeks the time of the Pentecost so what do the disciples do what do the disciples do after these things Jesus showed himself again to the disciples verse 1 of John 21 at the sea of Tiberias And in this way he showed himself, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. John makes special note in this story writing it several decades later this was written many decades after this happened but for some reason john felt the necessary to write this part of the story i'm going fishing these were experienced guys seven of them who spent all night we'll read we'll continue on here they said to him we're going with you also the six of them all said yep we're in let's let's get out of here let's go fishing they went out and immediately got into the boat and that night they caught nothing Seven experienced men with their big nets. And we'll see when you read the account, it was their big commercial nets. This wasn't guys just looking for some time away with their poles and looking for stuff. They had dropped their big commercial nets in. And the seven experienced guys came away with nothing. Not a single bite. not a single, Not a single anything. There wasn't even unclean stuff caught in the net it was the net was completely empty completely empty surely they hadn't been away from the fishing game that long why would john make a special note of this we can only speculate so this is speculation we can only speculate why john includes this part of the story verse 14 This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So this story was the third time that he had showed himself to the disciples. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to them, feed my lambs. There's a whole lot of stuff we could go into on different tangents about what this stuff means. Let's just focus on the mission he gave to Peter and the disciples. Feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. he said to him, then tend my sheep. Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And Peter, getting frustrated, said to him, Lord, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. You know all things. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Three times. Three times. Don't go fishing. Don't think about getting back into the old game. This wasn't their rods in the water taking a break. This was their big commercial nets, all seven of them. Again, speculation on my part, but for some reason John included this. And Christ reminded Peter three times that their job now was to feed the flock. Again, speculation only, but let's go back in time. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. When he first called them told them they were no longer going to be fishermen. That was their old life. Their new life was something different. Matthew chapter 4. And verse 18, Matthew chapter 4. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers. Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea. Or they were fishermen. This was their trade. The big nets, when you use the big nets, this was their trade. This wasn't recreation. This wasn't blowing off some steam, having a cold beer in the boat with your buddies, with your rod in the water. If you catch some, great. If you don't, no worries. The freezer is still full at home. They were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you Fishers of men. You're getting a job change. You're getting a vocation change. You're no longer going to be fishermen with your big nets. You're going to be fishers of men. They immediately left their nets, dropped everything, and followed him. John chapter 20. So they go through the period of time that Christ had his ministry. We know all the things that happened then. John chapter 20. After he appears to Mary Magdalene, after she runs into town and tells the disciples that she saw the risen Lord. Verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the first day of the week, or as Pastor Ramakan talked about last year, the first of the weeks of the countdown to Pentecost. Because the word day is italicized and not there. But anyways, that's a whole other tangent we won't get into. When the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And what did they do? They went fishing. I don't know why. I don't know what their mindset was. But enough because of the commercial aspect perhaps of that big net that likened right back to Matthew 4 when he said you're fishermen perhaps Christ was worried that they wanted to go back and be fishermen so he came made sure they caught nothing and then under his command gave them 153 fish and then reiterated the same message he'd been trying to tell them from the very beginning you are now fishers of men you have a job go do it. The message is clear and consistent from the very beginning to the very end. You are fishers of men. You have a job. And one of their first actions as a group going fishing. So we have option number three here in our quest to answer now what? return to our old, more comfortable ways. That is an option. That's another option. We can leave here and go back to, return to some of those things that we were trying to eradicate over the last number of weeks and months. Those little things that we're trying to improve for God. We can just say, man, that's a little too hard for me right now. I'm going to go back and try that again that's option three there were very few good kings of Judah there were no good kings of Israel after the separation after the split there were very few good kings of Judah but Hezekiah Hezekiah was one of them you'll recall that God granted him an extra 15 years from his apparent expiry date he was a good king because he cleansed the temple he restored temple worship and reinstituted the feasts of God. Let's go to Second Chronicles chapter twenty-nine. Second Chronicles chapter twenty-nine, and we'll see here that there was a rush to get things in order, so that the Passover and the days of unleavened bread could properly be kept. Chapter 29, verse 3. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, second 2 Chronicles 29, verse 3, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. So he repaired the doors of the house of God. Then... He brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them in the east square and said to them, Hear me, Levites, now sanctify yourselves, sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers, and carry out the rubbish from this holy place. For our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the sight, in the eyes of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him, they have turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and turned their backs on him. They have also shut up the doors of the vestibule, put out the lamps, and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the Lord God of Israel. Therefore the wrath of the Lord fell upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he has given them up to trouble, to desolation, and to jeering, as you see with your own eyes. Dropping down to verse 17. Now they began to sanctify on the first day of the first month, and on the eighth day of the month they came to the vestibule of the Lord. So they sanctified the house of the Lord in eight days. There was a lot to get done. There was a lot of work to do. The previous regimes had destroyed much, most, all of what the people needed to worship God. And time was of the essence. They only had a couple of weeks. They only had a couple of weeks. After they started sanctifying on the first day, they started on the eighth day cleaning up the vestibule. And it took eight days. The 16th. That ran a little past God's perfect timing. Of the 14th and the 15th. And on the 16th day of the first month, they finished. Dropping down to, for time's sake, let's drop down to verse 34. But the priests were too few, so they could not skin all the burnt offerings. Therefore their brethren, the Levites, helped them until the work was ended, until the other priests had sanctified themselves. For the Levites were more diligent in sanctifying themselves than the priests. Also the burnt offerings were in abundance with the fat of the peace offerings and with the drink offerings for every burnt offering. So the service of the house of the Lord was set in order. And Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced that God had prepared the people since the events took place so suddenly. There was joy that they had been able to get this done in such a little short period of time. But it was late, it was on the 16th. And Hezekiah chapter 30 and verse 1 sent to all Israel and Judah and he wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel for the king and his leaders and all the assembly in Jerusalem had agreed to keep the Passover in the second month for they could not keep it at the regular time because a sufficient number of priests had not consecrated themselves nor had the people gathered together at Jerusalem and the matter pleased the king and all the assembly so they resolved to make a proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba to Dan that they should come to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem, since they had not done it for a long time in the prescribed manner. So God allows for this second Passover when things just couldn't be kept on his time. It was was so important, as we heard last week, I think it was was, uh, Brother Adrian that had talked about that, that his timing is so perfect and proper that the second Passover was needed. It was the one holy day that God allowed a second keeping of, if need be. And they had done a lot of work to get this ready. Cleaned everything up. The priests had, and the Levites had consecrated themselves. They cleaned themselves up. They had got all of the, the offerings ready to go. They skinned all the animals. So now we're going to do it right. And we're going to do it on the second month. The way God has allowed. And there was joy in the land. Verse 13. Now many people, a very great assembly, gathered at Jerusalem to keep the Feast of love and Bread in the second month. They rose and took away the altars that were in Jerusalem and took away all the incense altars and cast them into the brook Kidron. And they slaughtered the lambs, the Passover lambs, on the 14th day of the second month. The priests and the Levites were ashamed and continues to go down. We, we won't go into all the, the nitty-gritty details of keeping the Passover there. Let's drop down to verse 21. So the children of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the feast and love and bread seven days. So they kept the Passover on the second day, and then they themselves kept the feast and leavened bread for seven days with great gladness. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing to the Lord accompanied by loud instruments. And Hezekiah gave encouragement to all the Levites who taught the good knowledge of the Lord. And they ate throughout the feast seven days, offering peace offerings and making confession to the Lord God of their fathers. They had been so far removed from this for so long that they were so happy to do this, they kept the entire feast in the second month. And then what happened? Then the whole assembly agreed to keep the feast another seven days. Was it holy time? The scripture says man can't make anything holy that God hasn't made holy. But does this mean they weren't doing a good thing by worshiping God and offering offerings on their own time? they decided to feast together again for another seven days. That's how joyful and happy they were to be doing this. And what did they do? Read all that they did. Hezekiah the king of Judah gave to the assembly in the second week. This didn't need to be done. The second week, they gave to the assembly a thousand bulls, seven thousand sheep. The leaders gave to the assembly a thousand bulls and ten thousand sheep, and a great number of priests sanctified themselves. This was a costly second week. This cost a lot of money to put this on, this second week. All of these offerings that they didn't need to give, they were ecstatic to be able to worship God for a second week of unleavened bread. Imagine that let's keep this flatbread dry matzo going for another week how many of you already have plans as to where you're buying your next loaf of bread when the sun goes down (laughs) the kids kids need sandwiches tomorrow in their lunch right they wanted to keep it another week it was so good verse 24 we read that we read verse 24 very costly because worshiping God back then was costly you gave of your of your animals. And they hadn't seen anything like this. Verse 26. So there was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. They hadn't seen anything like this since the days of Solomon. And they were more than happy to do this. Chapter 31. Now when all this was finished... All Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah and broke the sacred... Not just in Jerusalem, they went out to all the cities. And they broke the sacred pillars in pieces, they cut down the wooden images, they threw down the high places and the altars from all of Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh, until they had utterly destroyed them all. Then the children of Israel returned to their own cities, every man to his possession. Dropping down to verse 5. As soon as the commandment was circulated, the children of Israel brought in abundance the first fruits of grain and wine, oil and honey, and of all the produce of the field. And they brought in abundantly the tithe of everything. And the children of Israel and Judah, who dwelt in the cities of Judah, brought the tithe of oxen and sheep, also the tithe of holy things, which were consecrated to the Lord God. They laid in heaps. In the third month, they began laying them in heaps, and they finished in the seventh month. Re-establishing the worship of God. They cleaned themselves up for two weeks. They celebrated what God needed them to celebrate. They went again for another week, celebrated what they needed to celebrate, and then they spent the next four months cleaning up the entire nation. There wasn't an idol that stood. There wasn't an an evil thing that stood. It was busted into pieces. They went everywhere there was to go, and they made the nation holy again. Their deleavening attitude lasted for months. They weren't done just because the seventh day, sunset came on the seventh day. They weren't done. Their deleavening continued until the entire nation was clean. Until the entire nation was clean. So here we have option number four in our quest to answer, now what? Maintain our attitudes and actions of leavening, personally and in our collective community long after we leave here today. The leavening process, unless you're better than everyone else here, hasn't ended today. There is still work for us to do. There is still, by God's grace, through the work of His Holy Spirit, there's still room for us to become more like Jesus Christ, to put on the mind of God, to become ready, prepare the bride for His return. So our deleavening must continue past when the sun sets tonight. That's option four. We can continue with the deleavening when we leave here today. That's option four. Acts chapter 1. From the scripture reading earlier today. Acts chapter 1. long after the account that we read in John where Peter and the disciples were given their their mission and sometime between that time and Pentecost verse 4 tells us and being assembled together with them he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem but to wait for the promise of the Father which he said you have heard from me for John truly baptized with water but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Same message that they'd been hearing from the beginning. He was reiterating again. Wait, stay here. Wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Set yourselves up, and then you're going to be sent as witnesses to my death and my resurrection to all of these surrounding areas. Christ here clearly told them to wait. God had promised to send the Holy Spirit to this fledgling community of 120 believers. Verse 12... Then, after the previous verses where they witnessed Christ's ascension, to be by His Father's side, verse 12, "...then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying." Peter, James, John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. They they waited and prepared themselves together. They were a community. Acts 2 You'll see in verse 1, tells us, When the day, the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Why? Because they had just spent the preparation time for Pentecost being in one accord. Being in one accord just doesn't happen because we walk through a door and we happen to share a pew. Being of one accord comes because we're part of a family. We're part of a community. We value who we are together. We value what Christ has done for each of us, individually and the lot of us, collectively. They weren't just magically of one accord. They were of one accord because they worked at it. They spent time together. They prayed together. They supplicated together, as Scripture tells us. They were becoming a community during the Feast of Weeks leading up to Pentecost. So that when it finally came, they were of one accord. There was no doubt. This was a family. This was a group. This was God's people. This was a Christian army. So much so, that after the events of Pentecost, drop down to chapter 2, and in verse 41... Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. It can had, this was simply the continuation of a process that had begun long before and simply all they were doing was simply amalgamating the new souls into the family they probably couldn't do it anymore under one roof so they split up likely you couldn't get 3,000 in one place I doubt and have a, a, a profitable experience of praying and eating and breaking bread together so they likely split up but it was still of one accord and they just amalgamated these three thousand souls to to the point that they just continued what they had always been doing praying together, fellowshipping together, breaking bread together sharpening each other's iron to continue to be in one accord this wasn't something that, that just happened to start on the day of Pentecost, this was work that had been done before that was being continued the receipt of the Holy Spirit helped them do better help them likely improve their character and improve their their ability to, to, to be of one accord. But through fellowship, through interaction, through praying and studying together, eating together and spending time together, they became and continue to be of one accord. So we have here a fifth and final option. There may be others. You may in your studies notice other options that we have as the days of the love of bread come to a close. But here we have a fifth and final option in our quest to answer, now what? And that is build the household of God by becoming an active part of your community. You'll notice that we have not covered any new ground here this afternoon. There's no new doctrines that we've covered. There's no new teachings that we've covered lists from the New Testament of okay we're preparing for Pentecost so let's look, at, let's look at the fruit of the Spirit and let's try over the next seven weeks to work on the fruit of the Spirit let's try let's go to the gifts in Romans and in 1st Corinthians and let's work on these gifts we could go to Ephesians and talk about how the body is all fit neatly together and all the, the characteristics that make the body go together we could go to Second Peter and read his exhortation of to faith at virtue, and so on down that list. But quite frankly, we've heard it all before. We, we hear it every year. We hear it each week. Hopefully, we are studying and praying on a daily basis. Hopefully, we are fellowshipping with others in the body of faith. We come to services to hear messages of exhortation for us, like last week's cut-to-the-heart message on pride. We attend God's annual festivals, not only to be reminded of His great plan, but also the process we need to follow to be one of the first fruits. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, as we begin to wind down. his teachings on his second coming which will happen way in the future and what society will be like at that time we come to chapter 18 of Luke in verse 1 he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart so this was his message here keep praying and don't lose your focus don't lose your heart Saying there was there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him.